everyone. I'm Sherry Carney, and I'm a practicing attorney in California representing victims of child sexual abuse. I'm also a survivor. And this is Roar with Sherry, all things justice for women and survivors. You can find us on our social media at Roar is One. Yes, that's the number one. And at Sherry Carney and on our website, RoarIsOne.org. I've spent over 30 years surviving child sexual abuse, rape, incest, campus sexual assault. And if there's one thing I've learned, it's this. Our greatest gift can be found in our greatest trauma. Our trauma, our pain, cuts through to our inner core and reveals the magic within. And that once survivors find their voice, begin their healing journey, and come out the other side, there is no stopping us. That from trauma comes resilience and healing. You are fearless, brave, strong, courageous, magnificent, and I love you. I want this to be a podcast that's real, unpolished, gritty, honest, and reflects both the pain and purpose that comes from being a survivor. We will always ask, what happened to you? What have you experienced? What have you lived through? What have you survived? What is your story? And what must be done to bring you healing, closure, and yes, justice? The purpose of this podcast is raw emotion, our stories, inspiration, perspiration, and ultimately power through justice for survivors. Each episode will include conversations with guests who inspire me, offer insight into the law, help survivors find justice, victim stories, and life-changing transformations. People who are teaching me, challenging me, and inspiring me to move forward. I'll also have direct conversations with you about what I'm learning from survivors and experts that may help you break silence, speak out, find your purpose, seek and receive justice. So we'll do some episodes dedicated to answering your questions. You are not alone. This is your safe home for open, honest, provocative conversations about the dark secrets 81% of us have experienced, but don't talk about. You do not have to walk this path of life by yourself. You are not alone. We are here and we will roar as one. All things justice for women and survivors with you. I'm Sherry Carney. Welcome. everyone. I'm Sherry Carney, and this is Roar with Sherry, all things justice for women and survivors. You can find us on social media at Roar as One, that's the number one, and at Sherry Carney, and on our website, RoarAsOne.org. Today, we welcome Gemma Hoskins. She has been featured in the huge Netflix hit, the Keepers. It was Emmy nominated. And I just want to say that every now and again, you stumble across a documentary that leaves you speechless. You know, the ones I'm talking about, a documentary of murder, one that leaves you still trying to find resolve to an unanswered question in the days that follow. The Keepers is one of those documentaries in the nicest possible way. The narrative is horrible. It's upsetting. It's deeply troubling, but it's an important and incredibly brave story nonetheless. 
The Keepers tells the story of Sister Kathy Sesnick, a 26-year-old nun living in Baltimore who was abducted and murdered back in the 1960s. The case was never solved, but was linked to a horrific history of sexual abuse by a chaplain called Father Joseph Maskell. The documentary itself is incredibly interesting, but the subject matter is difficult. And descriptions of what happened are upsetting and rather detailed. So I want to make you aware that before you take a deep delve into this crime binge, it even for someone like me who's been through my own story, been through my own movie, been through my own trauma, I was deeply disturbed by this. It was very haunting. So I want you to meet Gemma Hoskins, who shares with us today her personal relentless pursuit of the unsolved murder of her favorite high school teacher, Sister Kathy Sesnick. In 1969, Gemma Hoskins was a student at Archbishop Keogh High School. She loved her teacher and her English and drama teacher, Sister Kathy Sesnick. She thought her school was safe, although strict. And that is until her favorite teacher, Sister Kathy disappeared in Gemma's senior year, November of 1969, and was found murdered only two months later. Sister Kathy's murder remained with Gemma, and even though decades had passed, Gemma continued to be haunted by this unsolved murder. With the help of her long-ago classmate, Abigail Schwab, who we have had on this podcast season one, so check it out, the two of them put on their citizen sleuth Nancy Drew hats, Gemma being the feisty Nancy Drew type and Abigail, the intellectual who was amazing at research, they partnered to find answers in their quest for answers to lead them to find the truth. It led them down unexpected and twisted rabbit holes, uncovering horrendous revelations of sexual abuse by the Catholic Church and a murder as well. It was becoming evident that there was a potential cover up by the church and law enforcement, although no concrete answers were found to date of who killed Sister Kathy. Gemma speaks candidly with us about her painful experience losing her favorite teacher, as well as the extreme courage decades later she showed to find the truth. We will explore what it was like and how she handled stumbling upon the truth about Sister Kathy's murder, her school, her chaplain, and the sexual abuse that she managed to escape. Her first book, now in paperback, keeping on how I came to know why I was born, and her second book, which I'm going to let you tell, I'm going to let her tell us about it later, Both books are really amazing, and I encourage you to find them on Amazon and read them. They're wonderful. So I want to jump to our conversation by saying to Gemma just how much we appreciate you making the time to be with us today during this incredibly painful, powerful, pivotal uh, information that you're putting out to the public, your experiences of losing someone you loved and admired at such a young age, your personal story the raw horror of what you uncovered, how it affected your faith, your quest to help others, what you uncovered. And I want to let you know that we hold it and know it and understand you, both victims of child sexual abuse and those who care about victims of child sexual abuse in religious organizations and other institutions from the bondage so many victims find themselves 
trapped in. So I want to thank you for freeing us to see this issue more clearly, for being who you are and the work you are doing today. And that's why I so welcome Gemma Hoskins. Welcome. Thank you, Sherry. It is an honor to be here. Um, that was really a good overview. I think I want your your script so that I can <laughs> use that in the future. But I am diligently working on this every day. In fact, a few minutes before I spoke to you, I was addressing a email to the uh, Archdiocese of Pittsburgh because I advocate for survivors. And so I'm working with a young man who's in Pennsylvania, who is a um, survivor of abuse by his teacher in a Catholic school. So it's something that the advocating for survivors is so important. And because I, I was not abused, I was, you know, raised in a pretty wholesome family in the fifties and sixties where nobody was hurting anybody. It gives me a little bit of emotional divorce. So it's not so painful for me to help them as if it had happened to me, but thank you so much for having me join you. And, and, and it's such a pleasure to have you be here. And what, what is so important that you just said is that the survivors community needs people who care about survivors who are non-survivors because they have a little bit of emotional distance and sort of balance the survivors, myself included, out. For example, my former law partner was not a survivor. She, you know, someone she knew very closely was, but it gave good balance. So we're so grateful to have you on Team Survivor. So what made you start looking into the death of Sister Kathy after all of these years? Well, when Kathy disappeared, I was not aware of anything that had been going on in the school. My sister and I were both at Keogh. She was a freshman. I was a senior. And I had no idea that there was abuse happening right in the building behind the door to the chaplain's office and behind the door to the chapel itself. Um, in the early 2000, well, in 1990s, early, uh, the Doe Row case where uh, Jean Wayner and Teresa Lancaster, both mm -hmm. in the keepers, they came forward and were co-plaintiffs in suing the archdiocese, the school, the school sisters of Notre Dame, Joseph Maskell, and the gynecologist that Maskell took girls to, Dr. Christian Richter. So although that was 20 some years after Kathy's death, it raised a lot of questions, and we all began to follow that closely in the newspaper. We didn't know who the girls were, but we did learn that they had a case, and that case was thrown out after hearings. It never went to trial because of the statute of limitations. At that mm. time, the statute of limitations did not include retrieval of memory. So, for example... Jean remembered within three years of that what had happened to her. Teresa remembered it forever. But the statute of limitations was the technicality that kept that case from going forward. So hold on a second. Let me see if I get you correctly. So was the Doe case something that got you interested in the issue of what happened at Keogh? Was that what triggered this whole beginning of you and Abby's work in unco uncovering it? Not yet. It interested me and my classmates because there was so much coverage in the newspapers. So it was thrown out. Time went by. And in 2006, I received a phone call at my home 
from Tom Nugent, mm-hmm. who was a journalist, used to work for the Baltimore Sun. <clears throat> he was looking for anybody who had gone to Keogh. Uh, he's a great person. He actually came from Indiana and went over to the school and they allowed him to look through yearbooks and take yearbooks with him. So his his idea was that he wanted to talk about what kind of person Kathy was. Now, in doing that, he wow. made a lot of phone calls and I happened to be home and he and I began to talk. And I said, he said, you know, do you know anything about any abuse happening there? And I said, only what was in the paper in the 90s, but that I myself had never been approached or had no idea what was happening. But I said, she is the reason I became a teacher. And Sherry, in 1992, I was fortunate enough to be named the Maryland Teacher of the Year. And I owe that to Kathy. I read that. Because I watched her Mm. teach and I wanted to be a teacher. And I said, this works because her standards were high, but it was all, it was a Socratic method. It was all probing us to explain our answers. And it's the way good teachers teach today. So I used every strategy I saw her use with us when we were teenagers. And it worked with my second graders, my fifth graders, my middle school kids. Okay, so she was really the inspiration for you to be a teacher. So absolutely, was that what you loved about her? What what made the connection with you so strong with her? Um, You know, tell me why she affected you so much. Well, everybody that knew her loved her. Mm. I don't know that any girl that ever had her for a teacher or a drama coach just was not enamored with her. Why did they love her so much? Tell me a little bit about her. That didn't really come out in the capers. Well, it sounds, uh, it sounds trite, but she Mm -hmm. really was like uh, the sound of music. She was like the nine in the sound of music. She was, it wasn't fake. It was, she was the real deal. And most of the sisters, it was mostly nuns in habits teaching at Keogh. Many of them were older. They were much more staid and not as dynamic, but she and her friends, sister Helen Russell, which was sister Ignatius at the time, they were young. You know, we were 16 and they were in their early twenties. So they connected with us, but I never missed a class. She was sometimes the reason when you get up and not feel well, or you're getting cramps or whatever. And it's like, oh, I have English today. I'm going, or we have drama club right. today. I'm so, going I mean, to she school. was like, uh, like light, like, uh, you know, that kind uh, of like and light and yeah. life. That a, the breath church of sun, is, a breath of fresh air. That the and, church is supposed to represent, but does not actually. Absolutely. So I, you know, I have a question for you. When when you talk about Joseph Maskell, tell me who he was. And did you confess to him? Were you did you ever go to confession? And he was your uh, priest that you confessed to. Right. Well, I never went to confession at Keogh. Um, oh. <laughs> I went to my parish on a Saturday with my brother, sister, mom, whatever, you know, in jeans with a, we put a Kleenex and a bobby pin on our heads instead of a chapel veil because you're supposed to have your head covered in church. Oh right? my God. So, and so did some of the students at Keogh go for, to confession to him? Yes. You didn't. Did. Do you think that that I helped you, that saved you? 
Well, I did not go. What I thought of him, Sherry, was that kind of nerdy to me. Mm. And he was just the priest that said mass on Fridays or whenever there was a feast day. And we all had to go to mass in the auditorium. I never had any interactions with him. He kind of made me feel a little creepy because he would stand in the hallway and just stare at everybody. A little bit like leering. I don't know how Mm. else to explain it. Like kind of sinister, but sort of with a smirk on his face. And I was not aware of anything that was going on. I would never have guessed in a million years that the only thing that separated us from hell was that door. That's amazing. And so in a close Catholic girls school or high school, how is it that the group of women that we find he molested and sexually abused and called their name over the loudspeaker to make them come to his office so he could abuse them. How was it that those girls kept it from the rest of you guys? In other words, schools are very are gossipy and chatty and clicky. And, you know, they say about a secret, you can only hold a secret for a lifetime between two people if one of them is dead. So right. how was it that he controlled these girls that they didn't even gossip about it their friends didn't whisper how is that possible i think listeners need to know that it it every, if they were abused in a religious organization or at home or somewhere else it's a very well kept secret yes, how how did he keep these girls silent there's a one word answer for that guns guns yes. what do you mean guns i never he, heard of that he had he collected guns He held guns in girls' mouths and said, if you tell anybody, I will kill your family, Uh, put a gun in their ear. Uh, Jean has actually, in in one of her books, her first book of poetry, written a poem about the gun that was on the desk between the two of them. So now what's interesting uh, is we've never heard of the guns. I did not see that in the keepers. No, it wasn't addressed in the keepers. He had guns everywhere. He had a gun on the altar oh. under the altar cloth. Um, in one a of gun the gun on the altar in a correct. church. Is that insane? Yes, it's insane. But he was he was a psychopath. The other thing that he was very good at and people that I've actually learned a lot from the survivors about psychopathy. Like it's a Mm -hmm. thing. And there's two personalities. One is very friendly and gregarious and smooth. And the other one is the devil in like literally. Mm -hmm. And at times, for example, some of the survivors have talked about being in his office and other men coming in. And so he was their protector if the men got too rough with them. So he was inviting police officers, politicians, other clergy to come into his office. There was a fire door, a back way in at which they could also leave. And he would bring them in and then he wouldn't abuse. They would. And if somebody got too rough, they would look to him to save them. There's a name for it. I think it's called the Stockholm syndrome 
Yes. Um, where you start I, to go, it's the Stockholm syndrome where you see your oppressor and your victimizer as your savior. Yes. They have all the power and exactly. you, you know, you kowtow to them because your survival is dependent on it. We call it the Patty Hearst syndrome also, where yes. Patty Hearst was taken by kidnappers and basically became part of them as a way to survive. I did not know that information either. One of the things that bothers me tremendously, I just heard today uh, the testimony of uh, Dr. Larry Nassar's victims with USA Gymnast Olympics, and they um, talk about not just the, the perpetrator keeping them silent, but the institution, the FBI, the police, the government, everyone associated with these institutions seems to protect the institutions and the victims struggle a lifetime to be heard and to get justice. You just pointed out that that the police were involved, a medical doctor was involved, community members, politicians were involved. How do you ever get accountability when the people in place to make sure you get justice are all predators, perpetrators, and pedophiles involved in your sexual abuse. That is devastating, Gemma. Maskell's network was huge. And I would like to add some of the faculty members were complicit. Some of the nuns Mm -hmm. who were at Keogh um, participated in the abuse. Some facilitated it and most did not prevent it. There were also lay teachers, and for those of your listeners who are not, there's sandblasting going on in my front street, so this is the best I can do. I'm sorry if it's noisy. I'll talk louder. Um, A lay teacher would be a person who's not a nun, a religious brother, or a priest who is teaching in a Catholic school. And we Mm -hmm. had a number of lay teachers who knew what was going on, but What happened to Sister Kathy happened early in his abuse career. So what would you do? I'd keep my mouth shut if I was threatened and told, you know, if you tell anybody you're going to be next, what are you going to do? Wow. So let me ask you, what did happen to Sister Kathy? What, What is your supposition? What do you think really happened? Okay. Um, I, well, She left at the end of my junior year. She left Keogh and Mm -hmm. she and sister Helen Russell moved into an apartment over that summer. So when I came back as a senior, we didn't expect her to be there anyway, because we knew that they were leaving. They were still nuns, but they were teaching in public schools because they felt like kids in cities needed more guidance and more help than those of us who were coming from maybe more protective families. My feeling is that they weren't able to do anything about the abuse at Keogh and that perhaps that's why they moved, but not far enough away that girls couldn't still see them. And in those days, this would be unheard of, but it wasn't unusual for us to go visit them at their apartment. And I remember going over there. I was 17. They were 25 and 26. It wasn't weird. Nobody was doing anything gay. It was just they were wonderful people. And I talk about this in my book. A friend of mine, we took a pizza over one night 
And when we got there, we realized the pizza was upside down. We opened the lid and the whole pizza was stuck on the cardboard. And Sister Kathy said, just we'll just get some forks and eat it out of the lid. <laughs> That's the kind of person she was. Right. And, but, and when you say gay, you just mean that there was no inappropriate sexual behavior. No, straight or right. gay or whatever. They just no. were very friendly. Exactly. They liked the students. They weren't predatory. Um, they were not that far different in age from all of you. And exactly. you were they were very relatable in a world yes. that could be in the Catholic church and Catholic schools, very not relatable. Exactly. So these were, you know, like young, hep, fun women. That's like, okay, the pizza's upside down. Let's eat out of the box. Just, right. And I didn't mean to imply anything except that with an all girls Catholic school, people are always going to go, oh, now there's two nuns living together. No, it was right, totally right. okay. They were roommates. So Kathy was teaching at a high school in the city. And even if they were gay, it's fine and acceptable. It doesn't matter. It had nothing to do with the story. It had to do with the predator. Maskell. Right, people yeah. like to add yes. something salacious yes. to an already, you Terrible know, horrible story. Exactly. Yeah, I would never and add something salacious nah. unless that was alleged. No. Every, and right. I didn't get that feeling from the documentary, from you, yeah. from Abby. It was like she was hep and young and understood you and you liked right. her and exactly. you hung out with her and she was an inspiration and it was neat. I mean, she that's cared. the kind of teachers we all want. Right. And I think that for some of the girls who ended up uh, as Maskell's prey, it was because they were in a vulnerable position. Um, and I don't want to get off your question, but once a week at the school, Maskell, the guidance counselor, the nurse, and the dean of students would have a meeting. And they would go over the names of all the girls who were having academic problems, health problems, or home problems. So that kind of gave him his list of young wow. women to uh, target and see what was going to happen. And in so fact, he picked the most vulnerable. It's like calling people, somebody right. weak out of a herd, someone that was having problems at home, someone that said they were being abused or an absent father or the marriage was splitting up or the brother was drinking or whatever. Mm -hmm. He targeted those victims he thought were the easiest prey. That and is because, despicable. Exactly. But that's all part of grooming. I yes. mean, he would come off as being very genuine to them. And mm. maybe the first few times really try and help them, you know, talk to their parents or counsel them in a legitimate way. But he was just figuring out where he could get his foot in the door, so to speak. And I'm not saying that there was anything wrong with girls who ended up as being his prey. I'm saying that he was very good at manipulating and knowing who might have a weak spot or a need to talk to him about something. And for me, nobody was hitting us at home. Nobody was, you know, if I said a bad word or talked back to my father, he'd get a rolled up newspaper. And if I could make it to the third step, he'd say, fine, stay up there. And I always <laughs> thought, why didn't I run out the front door to the playground? Right. Then he would say, Stay out there. Right. <laughs> nobody ever hit me. Have fun. No, nobody the, ever the hit me. Is 
you know, plenty of women and children are sexually abused at home. And so someone like I, I think someone confessed to Maskell that they were being or had been sexually abused at home. And he figured, great, someone else has already groomed this victim for me. Exactly. I mean, it's it's so predatory. And why do you think some of these predators are so attracted to Catholic churches, Catholic schools? What draws them there? That's a hot button, isn't it? That is a hot button. Always okay. count on me to push the hot buttons. <laughs> That's okay. I'm ready. Okay. First of all, pedophilia has nothing to do with homosexuality. Correct. Okay. Homosexuality is a lifestyle that's legitimate. Or it's a sexual orientation. In other words, it's a sexual orientation. Okay. There should be no confusion. Every document of research we've ever done says Mm -hmm. the lowest incident of child sexual abuse is committed by the LGBTQ community. The lowest amount of child sexual abuse. The highest is white, straight males. Right. And the reason I'm clarifying this is because there are many uneducated people who are going to say, well, all those gay men Mm. go in the seminary because they all want to be with each other. Maybe they do. I don't know. But then they're all going to don't care if they want to be with each other. I don't have an issue with priests uh, getting in relationships, marrying priests, making love with other priests, consensual. What I have a problem with is that it seems like the church attracts pedophiles. It attracts um, inter- like, okay. sexual yeah, deviance. Let me let me, let me um, con- clarify a little bit about why I think so. So okay, let's good. say there are men who are in a seminary. They may be gay or straight. I don't really care. And they're assigned to parishes. The reason that a lot of young men who were abused do not want to come forward and talk about it is because they think it makes them look like they are gay. That if That's a priest been a problem. prayed on a young boy, that young man is not likely to say much. Now, women, most of the women that have shared their abuse, it's, you know, I mean, it's women. We had one parish where Maskell was assigned where there were no reports of any kind of abuse. And about two years ago, a young, an older man now came forward and said, that's because he abused the whole Boy Scout troop and none of us oh. wanted to talk about it because we were all oh. ashamed. And he said he would have us over for movies at the rectory and he would take us upstairs one by one and then go down and get somebody else. And he said, I'm talking about it because I'm going to stay anonymous. I'm not going public. But that's why, because it happened to so many of them. And and here's what we find, Gemma, which you probably know. The average age victims have full recall, understand what happened to them, put their damages together is age 52. And most of that also male survivors are much 
later coming to the table. They are shamed. They're asked if they're homosexual. They're asked if they enjoyed it. They asked, you know, others will treat them if they've had a sexual encounter as Mm -hmm. being trained by an older woman and lucky. There is tremendous bias against male survivors. Why didn't you fight back? You know, you're a guy. You should always fight to the death so that it stops men who are victims of predatory priests and Jehovah's Witness and Boy Scouts and sports teams and and family members from coming forward because Mm -hmm. they're not only shamed by the sexual abuse, they're blamed for a different reason than girls are blamed. Girls are blamed. What were you wearing? Were you promiscuous? Mm -hmm. Were you flirty? You must have wanted it. Boys and children are blamed another way. But what's interesting is all of this takes the the focus on the victim instead of on the predators, politicians, doctors, an entire network of people keeping these what I would call sex rings going. I I think the reason nothing's being done enough, you mentioned the statute of limitations, you know, that is like my, you know, totally life purpose legacy is to make sure that victims like Teresa and Jean and any other survivors don't have statutes of limitations that we call senseless old laws that Mm -hmm. only protect protect perpetrators and basically close the doors for victims coming forward, which closes the information line to stop future victims from becoming victimized. Mm -hmm. In other words, if, if Teresa had been heard and believed, if Jean had been heard and believed, if their cases had gone forward, maybe there are generations after them and women after that, that masculine abused that was going on at that school would have been shut down. Right. So by closing the statute of limitations, you close everything and, and you only protect the sexual abuser. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't so, want to, yeah. Yeah, go I ahead. I don't want to move on without addressing your really excellent questions about why the priehood attracts it seems to attract so many pedophiles. My take and, on and that, deviance. Yes, Sherry, is that um and, and there are um nuns that are abusers as well. Yes, you I have know, a friend of mine. Not that just was not just priests, yeah. Yeah. I think it's because there are opportunities for religious clergy to spend one-on-one time with young people, mm. whether it's sponsoring a dance, whether it's confession, whether it's um, having Choir. Be, quite altar servers. Altar boys, right. So, you know, those young Trips men and young to women. other parishes for exactly, community exactly. events. Mm-hmm. Or Choir. to go on overnight trips because mm-hmm. the Catholic youth organization is taking all the kids. And so the priest is going to be a chaperone. So right. I do think that you're accurate in that there are pedophiles who perhaps see that as an opportunity to. I mean, this is like something they do all the time. To me, it's the only crime that is a mental illness other than necrophilia. It's a mental illness. They cannot be cured. They need to be controlled. Right now, there are 11 facilities in the United States that the church pays for to try and fix these people. They can't be fixed. I they say, cannot be fixed. Put, I agree. Put bars on those windows. 
those facilities, the Catholic Church is paying for those places. So let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Where in any other crime like murder would you send someone out to a facility to be trained and rehabilitated? You shoot someone with a gun. You don't go to a facility to get help. Why is it on sexual crimes? We don't see them as violent crimes. We see them as mental illnesses. Every perpetrator I've ever come across as a defendant when we were suing them or are suing them today, not one of them tests as mentally ill, not one. This is not a mental illness. As far as I'm concerned, I'm not a therapist. I'm not an expert. I think it's predatory. I think they can, it feels good. And they do. I think that what happens if you understand the brain is that you get um, a sexual pleasure with a certain deviant behavior and then the brain starts to program that as pleasurable. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just for listeners, try breaking in everyday, ordinary sexual encounters, try breaking and stopping one thing you really have liked your whole life. You know, maybe it's kissing or maybe it's, you know, having your, you know, your back soothingly rubbed or whatever your sexual uh, pleasure it generates. Try breaking that. Now you add deviancy, secrecy, excitement, mm-hmm. uh, law, dangerous behavior, you know, a, a helpless child, control, power. And you've got a sexual uh, nuclear reaction. Right. That cannot be cured yeah. by talk, talk therapy mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, a church rehabilitation center where you go and pray outside for two hours a day. Yeah. The, Give well, me problem, a break. Yeah. The problem is, and this is a huge issue that a lot of people do not know about, is that suppose a priest has moved around because they're abusing. OK, at some point they are often. Um, have their what's called their faculties removed, which means that the accusations are credible enough, Sherry, that they are removed from that parish. They are no longer permitted to say do the sacraments, which is Holy Communion, penance, marriage. What happens is the onus is now on society because they will be living in luxury uh, retirement communities around the Beltway on the church's dime as unregistered sex offenders because they've not been um, arrested oh. and convicted. And a lot of people don't think about this. I talked to the spokesperson for the Archdiocese of Baltimore and I said, How do you keep track of the priests who are either laicized or have their faculties removed? Laicization has to happen by the Pope. That means they're not a priest anymore. They're a mister or a miss or a missus or whatever. That's the same problem because, yeah, Mm. they lose their pensions. But they my mother was in a really nice retirement community where people take their children and grandchildren. And so let's say a, 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 a credibly accused priest is living there and nobody knows it. Well, it's like, let's go down the hall and see, get your blessing from father's, you know, candy for you or let's go and some flowers. Right. Because they're unregistered sex offenders. And the spokesperson for the for the church in Baltimore said, um, well, if somebody gets fired, Gemma is saying, said, if somebody gets fired from Home Depot, they don't follow them. And I said, 
this is not Home Depot. This is a Catholic church. So the onus moves to We're going to take a short break and we'll come back on the other side to find out how Gemma hasn't given up on solving the murder of her favorite high school teacher, Sister Kathy Sesnick. This podcast is supported by Focus for Health Foundation. Together, we are in the fight to protect children from abuse. Learn more on our social media platforms with our handle at Focus for Health or by logging onto our website at focusforhealth.org. Hi, this is Roar with Sherry, all things justice for women and survivors. Welcome back with our guests. Sorry for the technical problems we were having. Gemma Hoskins featured in Netflix's The Keepers. Um, We're talking about how priests that have been credibly accused of sexually abusing children, what the church does is just sort of remove them from the priesthood, but still allow them to enter retirement communities and enter neighborhoods without having to register as sex offenders because there's been no criminal prosecution. There's been no legal action. So that's another reason eliminating criminal statutes and limitations protects your children and your family. So Gemma was just talking about that. One thing I wanted to get back to, and I mean, Gemma and I could talk for hours, <laughs> is what um, what is going on with the murder of Sister Kathy says? Why has it not been solved? OK, my opinion, just my Only opinion. Your opinion. That's OK. Um, first of all, I'm a major boat rocker, as you can tell the I believe without a doubt. That's why I love you so much. OK, I believe <laughs> that the police department knows who did this. And if it's publicly revealed, just my opinion, it's going to take down about 10 police families from the southwest area of Baltimore County, because we know who their fathers and grandfathers were. That thin blue line is very strong. It's going to take down some very, 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 very high read between the lines political families who were well-established in Baltimore. Um, It's also going to take down the um, Catholic Church, probably all the way to the Vatican. So it's better for them not to say who did this than to have all that happen, okay? Because the towers are going to come down. This I I am not accusing the county of a cover-up, but... I believe this has been solved a long time ago. Mm. I believe that they, well, they won't tell me anything because as soon as they say like it's Gemma Hoskins, that nobody will talk to me. Right? I wish my name was like Mary Smith or something like that. Then they wouldn't know it was me. But we are getting help and we're not going to stop. And we have actually um, enlisted the help of some pro bono, wonderful attorneys from the Maryland Crime Victims Resource Center who have lots of knowledge and are going to be able to help us. There is an investigation going on in the attorney general's office that's been going on for three years, the same way Josh Shapiro did Pennsylvania. Now, Mm -hmm. we keep asking, when is this going to conclude? And nobody can tell us. I've probably sent... 30 to 50 men and women to that investigator with their information. And it's not all abuse information. One young woman, she was a whistleblower and she saw a bishop 
loading files into the back of his car when the federal government said, don't get rid of anything. So what are the churches going to do? They're going to get rid of it. And she reported to this to the attorney general's investigator. So we also have talked to people who used to work at the archdiocese who saw things and who are willing to talk about it now because they're retired. And we want to know what's going to happen with all that information, because there are still people living that know what happened to Kathy, that know what happened to Joyce Malecki, and that are still school sisters of Notre Dame. And I think they need to be held accountable before they get on that elevator, because I don't think it's going up. I think they're getting on the down elevator. So in your personal opinion, just in your opinion, do you think Father Maskell either killed Sister Kathy Sesnick or had her killed? No, I think he was the choreographer. Mm -hmm. I believe that she was collateral damage. And as you mentioned before, the network was very large. The network was rings of sex rings. And it probably extended over several states And one thing that I've learned in studying this, it's a weird thing to study, is that there's a vertical chain of of complicit persons. In other words, let's say a pedophile priest wants to be protected. He'll have a lawyer who's a pedophile. And that Mm. lawyer will have uh, somebody in the city government who's a pedophile. And that person might have... Okay, so... They take care of each other. I'm not saying that's what happened, but that is not atypical because they help each other this way, but they all are on the same plane as far as what they're doing to children. So I believe he was protected and I believe he provided a lot of girls to police officers. He uh, would hypnotize girls. He would drug them. We believe he was using the date rape drug because girls would wake up and be disheveled and not know what happened to them. Um, he was a master of manipulation and used the, the click of his door and the words, I'm only doing what's best for you to trigger their hypnosis. And it's very dangerous when, you know, most of these women and men are in, have been in therapy for years but for their therapist to hypnotize them to try and get them to remember what happened is often contraindicated, Sherry, because it could trigger that hypnosis that happened when he did it to them. Oh. So it's not um, it's not the first choice of trying to help them bring back memories because it could trigger it could trigger a major attack that it would be very difficult to, to get this person out of safely. Oh, and there's you, so, you lay, so much to learn. You lay out something so interesting, Gemma, that I wanted to address quickly, which is we look at cases like the Epstein case where we right. see very high people in a variety of countries, mm-hmm. Prince Andrew, presidents of the United States, Saudi princes, um, you know, very famous, you know, wealthy businessmen, you know, and we see this whole, you know, whole chain of people. 
and we see the cover up and we see that the victims are screaming into the wind trying to get some justice. And now you show me another area where it is exactly the same thing. Police are involved. Doctors are involved. Politicians are involved. It's a sex ring. There's sex trafficking. I mean, it's really opening my eyes to how many of these institutions and individuals it and it's not that one girl's being sexually abused is not enough that is horrible in and of itself and a life in trauma inducing mm-hmm. experience that one lives with the rest of their life but to have these powers that be so locked in because i just had someone on the podcast from jehovah's witness And she's describing exactly what you're describing Mm -hmm. and all the community members and all the worldwide organizations involved. So, I mean, people need to understand that this child sexual abuse, whether it's in the family, an institution, at a a workplace, um, a a sports activity, um, school, education, religious, tends to be a much bigger system than any of us realize in right. keeping the secret. For example, we just talked about this. The victims of Dr. Larry Nassar, USA gymnast Simone Biles, has gone to the FBI, called the FBI's office in, I think it was uh, Indiana, and I might have the state wrong, several states, several victims. And the FBI promised to call the local state police and report this and never did. Los Angeles did take one of these cases and did start looking into it. But the FBI just completely dropped the ball completely. These are American athletes that represent the best of America at the hugest athletic event. They are not listened to. They are not protected. Their statutes of limitations are running. There weren't criminal convictions. In fact, one of the persons at the USA gymnast that was involved in overseeing this was offered, you know, a job. He was an FBI agent offered a job at USA Olympics. I mean, so we're, we're really looking. Let me ask you the stupidest question I've probably asked anyone. But what is it that people, men particularly, are so interested in sex with children and underage girls? I don't get it. What is this huge, uh, I don't even know what to call it, desire, addiction, uh, deviancy? It's it's an excellent question. And I'm going to recommend that your listeners do some homework and read about what psychopathy is, they are psychopaths, okay? It is an illness. They cannot stop. I don't feel sorry for them because mm-hmm. they can be controlled. They need to stay away from children, like permanently. You can castrate these people and they're still going to abuse. It has nothing to do with that. With sex. Right. It's a mental illness, but acting on it, there's actually a, this is kind of weird, but there's a trailer park in Florida and the trailer park is reserved. It's locked up every night for men who have done their uh, jail time as pedophiles. Okay. So let's say they were in jail for 20 years for abusing children. Now they're out. This is, I'm not feeling sorry for them, but it's a safe place for them to live because they're supervised, 
They are trying very hard not to reoffend. There are therapists that live there with them. It's almost like people go to AA meetings every night. Mm-hmm. Well, they go to their pedophile meetings every night. They do not leave the, the campus. They have jobs there inside the campus and they're locked in at night and they want it this way. And it was a fascinating either 60 minutes or a documentary talking to one of the men who's been there a long time. And he said, I know I'm going to be misunderstood. I spent 25 years in jail for abusing children, but this is where I have to live in order to stay safe and for those kids to be safe. So controlling the situation after prison is possible. I think that's a pretty unique way of doing it. But um, as I said, it's a crime that's also a mental illness. And, you know, see, and I look at it differently. You know, Jamba, see, I well, think, sexual I think we, deviancy is not always pedophilia. Exactly. And I right. think we sexualize children in advertisements, oh, yeah. in the media, yeah. in television, in selling perfume, in selling diapers. I think we create a culture in child pornography mm-hmm. that sexualizes children and increases uh uh, that desire for young children, we use it as a way to sell products. I think in a, in many yeah. countries, you know, you you know, but if, you know, I've seen pictures of children that were six and seven years old that were dressed like fifteen year olds yeah. in makeup and high heels. Mm-hmm. And I think part of pedophilia and sexual abuse and perpetration in America comes from advertisers selling the sexualized version of children to sell a product, and right. the end result is the sexualization of children. I think child pornography has a huge role in this. Before we sort of start to wind down our conversation, I do have a question. Did the murder of Sister Kathy Sesnick and the sexual abuse that you found from committed by Father Maskell and others, did it make you lose your faith, Emma? Uh, uh, Gemma? Gemma, Gemma, I can't get your name right. Um, I can't get your last name right. Emma, Gemma. No, no, no. Call me whatever you want. You can call me whatever you want. It means we're having a good conversation. That means I'm like just, Um, they're all with you. We could talk forever, Sherry. Exactly. I um, have not practiced my Catholic faith for many years. I was married Catholic. Um, I lost my husband. We were both 35. That's not why I lost my faith. But the Catholic, when I was raised... Uh, I went to Catholic grade school and high school, and all of that was based on guilt, fear, and boredom. And I bought the whole package. Mm-hmm. And we were a family. We went to mass. I hated it all. It meant nothing to me. My faith, faith and religion are two different things, okay? Faith to me, I believe in the Lord. I believe in a higher power. I believe in a, a life after death but it has nothing to do with being Catholic. I mean, are only Catholics allowed to have saints? Seems like it. And the saints have to have two. Oh, now they're down to two miracles instead of three in order to be a saint. Like, how stupid is that? Right. So I don't practice my faith, but I try to light like it's Saint light. It used to be three and now you can be a Saint light with two. Right. So you can have a saint. You can be like Saint somebody. Diet saying, saying, right. People keep saying we need to push for Sister Kathy to be a saint. Well, to me, that just has to do with the traditional church. To me, she is a saint. 
She right. is somebody we can look right. towards and get inspiration and direction from. Sure. You know, my mom, my husband, my late husband and Kathy are always like, okay, what would mom do? What would Kathy mm. do? What would Ernie do? And mm. they all have different answers, but they all give me guidance. So yes, I do not practice my Catholic faith. I will not right. go into a Catholic church. Um, I have a few friends who are wonderful priests, but that's not their fault. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? They're That's like it. some good guys out me. there. Yeah. I and know some what have you left. mean. You're speaking um, my language. Yeah. In terms of her murder, that doesn't really impact my faith a whole lot. That's more my Nancy Drew side. Mm. And I do think, and I'm just going to put this out there. The last chapter of my book is my theory about who killed Kathy. So now your readers are going to have to buy the book. That's and the it. first the first line says, I know you skipped to the back of the book <laughs> to find out what I think. So anyway, um, <laughs> that's hilarious. You know, I, I give my theory and I stand by it, even though a lot of people disagree with me. OK, so I always finish every interview with the same question. If you were talking to a Catholic school girl who may have suffered sexual abuse by the church or a priest and there was one thing you could give her to help her on her healing journey, what would it be? She did nothing wrong and she's not at fault. None right. of this was her fault. None of it. She okay. did nothing wrong, even if somebody enjoyed it. Jane talks about. And Teresa talks about she thought she was in love with Maskell. That's oh. the manipulation and the grooming. They did nothing wrong. And I think that must be the biggest hill for survivors to climb to get to a point where they can acknowledge that none of this was their fault. They were children and somebody took advantage of them. Without a doubt. Thank you. I'm so grateful that you were here with us for this conversation Thank today, you. Gemma. The more we can understand the horror, disturbing, and deeply troubling sexual abuse right. so many children right. in religious schools and institutions face sure. daily, the more we can do to protect, save, prevent, tighten up the law so we can ensure justice for those victims of child sexual abuse and religious abuse um, so that we can prevent the next generation of innocent children from being sexually abused and from being silenced, you know, maybe even by murder, to. by someone who found out right. and tried to take action to prevent and stop the abuse. The more we can talk about it, the more we understand it, the fuller our lives will be and the safer we can all be so that we can get justice for all victims. If you would like to, um, We'd like to hear from you. So please email us at hello roar podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on social media at roar as one. That's the number one. Follow me, Sherry Carney on social media. And as you know, all of the roar with Sherry podcasts are streaming and downloadable at our website, roar as one.org or wherever you listen to your podcast. Donate for victims of child sexual abuse at roarasone.org uh, forward slash donate forward slash. It was such a privilege to talk to Gemma Hodgkins about this. Uh, Gemma, how can people find you and your book? The book okay. is Keeping On, How I Came to Know Why I Was Born by right. Gemma Hoskins and right. your second book. Okay. Uh, it's on Amazon as a book as a Kindle, an ebook, and Audible. I did the Audible narration myself. So people can go to Amazon and look, just look my name up, keeping on, 
Um, they can also, if they want to contact me through my webpage, I can arrange for them to get a signed copy and I pay for the shipping. My website is gemmahoskins.com. Very easy. Well, that's okay. easy enough, and it's Gemma, so don't take my goofy uh, mistake. Right. com, and they should use the contact form, not the Amazon link, if they want a signed copy. Fantastic. So I know okay. I love your attitude that you're in this for the long haul. Yep. You said, I'm not going to sit down. Shut up. Or, go, or away. go away. And that is what so many survivors need to hear. Um, I'd like for survivors everywhere to take the pledge with me and Gemma today to never sit down, shut up, or go away or go when away. it comes to justice for victims of sexual abuse. Thank and you I, to our listeners. I'm grateful you. to you for spending your time with us today, Gemma. Stay um, brave and kind. Remember, you can survive and thrive, I promise. And always speak up, stand up. Fight for yourself and for those who can't yet fight for themselves, who need you as their superhero and be the advocate you are for justice. Thank you. I'm going to throw in a plug for my new book, People That Watch the Keepers and from Facebook know that I have a dog named Teddy. So I've written a book called This is the Commercial Break. It's fun. You'll like it. There's activities in it. Teddy Tales, a puppy primer. And it's for people who get their first dog as an adult. And all of the artwork was done by people that know Teddy and me from Facebook and from the Keepers. So that book will be on Amazon within a few weeks. But people can also get a signed copy from me and Teddy. Teddy's going to sign all the books. (laughs) And they can do that on my webpage as well. But Sherry, I want to thank you for what you're doing. Because if it wasn't for people like you that have the stamina and the voice and are so determined that keeps people like me going. So thank you, sweetie. Thank you. Thanks. Very nice to have you today. Thank you so much. That means the world to me. You're welcome. We'll have you back soon. Bye, Gemma. Good night. This podcast is supported by Focus for Health Foundation. Together, we are in the fight to protect children from abuse. Learn more on our social media platforms with our handle at Focus for Health or by logging onto our website at focusforhealth.org. Thank you. Stay safe and know that I love you. Roar with Sherry, All Things Justice for Women and Survivors is hosted by me, Sherry Carney, attorney at law, produced by Chris Padretti, associate produced by Amy Gutierrez, sound engineered by the awesome Ronan Rosner, and music by the amazing Sharon Gatow. Roar with Sherry, All Things Justice for Women and Survivors is an educational program of Roar as One, Inc., a 501c3 nonprofit. We'd love to hear from you. Please follow us on our social media at Roar as One and at Sherry Carney and go to our website, RoarAsOne.org. And as you know, all the Roar with Sherry podcasts have episode pages on RoarAsOne.org and we will give you all the guests and all our social media handles on the website, RoarAsOne.org. Roar as One Inc. owns the copyright in and to all content in and transcripts of the Roar with Sherry, All Things Justice for Women and Survivors podcast with all rights reserved, including right of publicity. Sherry Carney, the host of Roar with Sherry, All Things Justice for Women and Survivors, is a survivor and practicing attorney in California representing victims of child sexual abuse, sexual assault, and sexual harassment. Even though Sherry Carney is a licensed 
practicing attorney in the state of California, practicing in the areas of child sexual abuse, sexual assault, and sexual harassment. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only. There is no expectation of confidentiality, and it is not intended, nor should it be construed as legal advice. For legal advice, you should seek competent legal counsel. If you're interested in speaking to Carney's law practice, they can be reached at CarneyAdvocates.com. Please note that Carney Law is owned by Sherry Carney. Carney is the founder of Roar as One. Roar as One is a nonprofit. Carney Law is a law firm, and they are otherwise unaffiliated. The nonprofit Roar as One is providing this podcast as a public service and is informational only. It is neither legal advice, legal interpretation, legal representation, or a statement of policy. Reference to any specific guest, product, or opinion by the host or guest does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by Rora's One Inc., Sherry Carney, She Heroes Production Inc., the producers or our sponsor. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent and is purely voluntary. Well,